We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced, the Wajak Noongar people, and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. So Courtney, we're back again after a, a few weeks of uh, different yeah, activities. Ah, you have been gallivanting around the world. Where have you been up to? Well, where have you been? <laughs> I've been up in the sky for uh, probably a couple yep. of days of it. Um, yeah, I went over to the UK recently. Got back a bit over mm-hmm. a week ago, and yeah, so we were there. So my wife's from Scotland, so we were there visiting um, her family. And then my youngest sister got married oh, in Northern exciting. Ireland. Northern Ireland is beautiful. So, yeah, yeah that, that would be lovely. <laughs> yeah, it, it was. Yeah, we, we were, uh, the wedding was on an, a little island in the middle of a lake. Mm, that's so and, cool. Um, so that was pretty cool. Um, yeah, a few late nights and lots of um, panicking to get to the next destination because mm-hmm. we're trying to cram in three years' worth of visiting <laughs> into into three and a half yep. weeks. Yep. So, yeah, we, yeah, so, we, and then we went down to England for a little bit. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a little bit chaotic in the UK, and I, as I think it is here as well. Um, like traveling is, is quite hard work, and there's a lot of uncertainty mm-hmm. around whether or not trains are going to be operating and flights are getting cancelled. And, you know, they've obviously got staff shortages, um, the same way as we have here, because people end up getting knocked out of the workforce for a week or whatever, uh, if they uh, fall sick. And so, yeah, we've had we had a few last minute kind of rearrangements, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, some angry people at different times. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> not, not, yeah, not. Uh, so one example was um, traveling on the trains. Usually, you you can book a ticket ahead of time, and they give you a seat number mm-hmm. so you can reserve a seat in a particular cabin. And of course, some of the trains are operating at half capacity. So instead of you know nine or ten carriages, there was five, and so they had to say, well, clearly not everyone that's booked a particular seat is going to have that particular mm-hmm. seat. So we're taking all the bookings off. So there's just sit where you, oh, no. sit where you it's can. Like, um, it's like we're in Australia yeah. when they changed the movies to like assigned seating to no assigned seating. I thought it was terrible <laughs> when that happened. Yeah. yeah. Oh, God. It just like it causes yeah. chaos because then like people like leave well, one seat in between each other and then no one wants to sit there and it just, yeah, it's, it gets annoying. Yeah. And then, and then we – so we were getting a, a train from Exeter in, in Devon up to London, which is – I think it's about a two-hour, two-and-a-bit-hour train ride. And there's a, there's a few stops on the way. And we, we weren't the – you know, we weren't the first stop. There was a, a, at least a stop or two before us. So people who were sitting on the train from the beginning were probably having to repeat the same story every time we stopped at a new stop because those people are expecting mm-hmm. their assigned seat and – it's like you've got to explain, actually, no, there's no mm-hmm. assigned seats, you know, even though you've got a ticket that says there is. And then, you know, people end up standing and having to s- sit in the corridor and sit, you know, in between cabins. And, yeah, it's there's luggage, you know, um, suitcases and that's yeah. stacked <laughs> a mile oh, high because <laughs> there's not enough space. So, yeah, that's just yeah. life at the moment. Um, 
and you, yeah, I guess you just have to roll with it. And you know, I, I know it's been happening here as well. I've, we've got a, a family member who uh, went to New Zealand recently, and it took them a couple of days to get there when it should have been, you know, a, a, a few yeah, hours. Yeah, right. Yeah, I've heard. Um, due to can- I've heard that like at airports and things, the the waiting times are very very long. Um, and it's, you know, it's not just lack of yep. staff. But I did hear uh, my partner was saying that there was an article the other day where airplanes are just waiting on tarmacs um, and it's for, for kind of silly things like everyone's ready to go but there's not enough uh, staff to put drinking water on the plane and things like that. Like, yeah, yep. it's it's pretty crazy. Yeah. Well, I can give you two examples <laughs> just along yeah. those lines. So the the person that was traveling to New Zealand had a, a one-hour stopover to connect in, I think it was Melbourne, and there was, wasn't enough staff to bring those movable staircases over to the side oh, of the no. plane, you know, yeah. the, on the wheels. So they, they got delayed by 45 minutes or something, and so then she missed a connecting oh, flight. And she was, like, in and the airport as well. That's That's frustrating. Yeah, they're just sitting on yeah, sitting on the like plane, you can just jump you know, off waiting the plane. to get off. <laughs> yeah, mm. which is crazy. And then the other one was we we spoke to some people in the UK who arrived back. I think it was either Glasgow or Edinburgh, one of the airports in Scotland, and they were waiting for their luggage for four hours because there was no one to unload the luggage from oh the plane God. and bring it over. So, yeah, slightly frustrating. Yeah, yeah, and it, but it's not like you can you can't blame anyone either. And I know, like, we we try no, and, just, like, as enough. humans, we like to blame others. That's just a, I feel like, a generic mm. human trait. And in this situation, you just can't, like, you might want to blame the, the uh, airplane companies, but really it's affecting everyone. So, mm. yeah. Yeah, look, the individual people are doing as much exactly. as they can do. Um, and, and obviously the companies are trying to operate within the rules that, we've set out you know so people who test positive to covid for example need to isolate for seven days and you know so there, there's only so many um contingencies and, and spare staff that they could have on hand at any one time and yeah obviously we'll have more of a chat about COVID yeah. <laughs> a little bit later but yeah there's it's just uh, i think right now my view is unless you really need to travel like it's essential just don't because you're just going to end up getting quite frustrated and uh, on balance where it made sense for us to go because we hadn't been over for three years and you know you want to see family members and and that sort of thing so it was worth the inconvenience but now that we've done that um you know we're we're good yeah and i think like that's the kind of main difference i guess is you're probably prepared for a lot of those delays so i don't know if you missed any flights or anything um but no, we were lu- we were lucky yeah. with flights. So yeah. having that we like it, preparation, yeah. knowing um, I would probably, if I was doing multiple flights, I'd probably leave a day or two between each one, um, and you know you just get there slowly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, that's it. And if you could minimise the number of airports you have to go through, you know, obviously try and get as few connections as possible because that's just another opportunity for something to go, yeah, go wrong. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, but, yeah, look, and the other thing that kind of struck us going back to the UK for the first time in three years was how 
expensive everything was really? compared to the last time. Yeah, okay. I, so, so, I, I went to I, I went to um, London a few years ago now, um, and mm. uh, I guess one of the things that was uh, good for me at the time, I quite enjoyed it, was like a pint of beer was very, very cheap. It was like half the price of an Australian one um, when I went. So yeah. I guess equivalent now, mm-hmm. how much is a pint of beer there? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so we actually did go to London for a night on our travels. Um, so I think we paid about six pounds. Yeah. For a pint, so that's that's on a par with Australian yeah, prices now. Yeah, so I now. think we were paying like three or four yeah. pounds. Yeah. Yeah, which is what we paid last time we were back. It was somewhere around three or four yeah. pounds for a pint. So yeah, it's definitely um, gotten more expensive. The petrol oh is, is like yeah. two pounds compared to like less than two dollars mm-hmm. over here. Um, you know, if you take this, it's basically double what you, what we're paying here. Um, and I know, I know people on the East coast of Australia have, uh, are having really high energy Mm -hmm. bills right now, um, due to energy crisis and gas shortages and all that sort of stuff. Um, but obviously in WA, we're fairly lucky that, um, our government actually quarantines a certain percentage of the gas that gets produced. Yeah, I I heard about that. um, It's, um, it was something that was like implemented a long time ago, like ages ago, where we, it was, yeah, it was. Uh, I think it might have been Colin yeah. Bailey's government, or yeah. So going back several years, um. So yeah. So basically, when um, mining companies are given their license to mine mm-hmm. natural gas, they have to sign a clause saying that I think they have to keep fifteen percent for use by the local citizens, local yeah. residents. Um, to avoid what we're seeing over in New South Wales and Victoria. You know, I speak to friends over there who are literally pay- paying hundreds of dollars for energy bills, you know, like several hundred dollars. Which is dollars crazy as well. For their energy like, bills compared to it. We're in Australia. Like, we have so much sun. And, you know, Western Australia, yeah. uh, this this is a, a stat from a long time ago. I don't know whether it's still true, but uh, we're like the third windiest city in the world. Um uh, yeah, I, uh, I would probably have to fact check that. But, you know, wind, very good source of energy, and yet we still have yeah. an energy crisis. Mm. Yeah, I know, which I think probably is quite a good segue into talking about the fact we've had a change of government recently over here, in, you know, our yeah, Commonwealth government. absolutely. Uh, from Yeah, so we lost Scott Morrison, which I know many people will be devastated about. Um, and but we gained Anthony Albanese, which is also so. something that I think many West Australians would be very happy about. Uh, <laughs> I think a lot of us yeah. went Labor this time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I th- yeah. Look, uh, what was striking to me? I don't know how engaged you are in the political process, but um, I'm You're quite. Into it. <laughs> I follow politics quite closely. I, I know yeah. a little bit, so I'm willing um, to learn. <laughs> okay, so I think what struck me about this election is that there's a lot of independent and minor party people in the mm-hmm. parliament now, um, way more than ever before. And my, from my point of view, having I lived in Europe for several years when I was younger, um, a lot of the kind of more developed countries in Europe with you know old political systems like Holland and Germany and whatnot, um, there's no one party that's mm. in power. It's, it's a coalition of, of multiple parties and they often span you know from the conservative side through to the more liberal side of politics so what what i've seen from over there is that that results in often a bit more balanced policy making and 
less extreme changes in in policy. So things that things are sort of handled gradually because they have to do it by consensus because one side doesn't just say right this is what we believe and that's what's going to happen like it's yeah they have to sort of negotiate to to get Whereas things through we parliament. have because we have a majority labor now right we do yeah, a bare just, majority, just majority. Like, yeah i think they've got two yeah, seats which yeah. means that it's easier for labor to get policies through that maybe are less yeah. conservative yeah so, so certainly through the the lower house of parliament. So in the upper house, no no one has a majority. So the Greens actually have quite a few members in the upper house and there's a couple of independent senators now, I think, as well. Um, in fact, one's a former Wall- Wallabies rugby <laughs> captain, um, David yeah. Pocock, who, who is a, a sort of left-leaning, um, progressive, environmental type candidate. So he's very interested in environmental policy and... Um, yeah, I think he's 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 a really good addition to the parliament. Um, so what has to happen is obviously the in the in the lower house, which is where the government is kind of formed, um, that they they'll have the numbers to get it through that house, but it still needs to go through the Senate in the upper house. And so they're going to have to do deals with the Greens and David Pocock and other independents like Jackie Lambie and whatnot to get their legislation through. And I think what you'll find is they'll go to to these people with a blueprint, like a, a draft, and then they'll negotiate and maybe some of the things in the draft get changed, you know, to um, to appease those individuals who then will agree to, to vote to pass it through. Um, and, yeah, I think, and like, there's a couple of things which instantly changed when Al- the Albanese government got elected. One was that they reset our climate um, change goals, you know, our climate policy goals straight away. So... They went from, I think the previous government had this net zero by 2050 policy, which they sort of dragged their feet on and eventually introduced. Um, But I think the Albanese government's now said that they're going to pledge to reduce emissions by 43% by Mm. 2030 on the way to having Mm -hmm. net 50, sorry, net zero at 2050. Um, So that was fairly instant. And the actual first thing he said in his his winner's speech was that... um, Indigenous recognition in the constitution is is the the centerpiece of their policy platform for the next you know next term. So you can expect a bit more about that. We're going to be having a referendum to vote on whether we should acknowledge um, traditional owners as the original people uh, in Australia, and and then as part of that, they're pushing for a a voice to parliament that isn't enshrined in the constitution. So there'll be an Aboriginal group that will have. The, the opportunity to contribute to parliamentary discussion, I believe, about particularly about legislation that affects Aboriginal people or Indigenous people. So, yeah, so those, those are probably the two big changes um, that we can expect to see. Uh, and both of those, I think, have, have, a, yeah, have the potential to have a huge impact oh on gosh, health yeah. and well-being. You know, across Absolutely. the community, and hasn't there? There's also been the establishment of a um, climate change and sustainability section in um, the federal department as well. Um, I think I've seen adverts yeah. for it, basically. Um, that, that's right. I, see, a lot of these things already yes. existed, but they were they were sort of diminished uh, under the previous government. So the funding got sort of reduced to almost you know mm-hmm. almost zero for a lot of them. Uh, and they also put people 
in charge of them whose experience and interests more lay in commerce than than environmentalism. So people who'd worked in the gas industry and you know, the mining industry and stuff were in charge of these uh, environmental yes. agencies. <laughs> that sounds very Australian. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I think one in particular got got appointed right at the end of the last government's term and it was obviously a political appointment and that person since, mm-hmm. I think, resigned, you know, understanding that they, that they were put in there just That's as awesome. a, you know, mm. yeah. During the election, I, I paid a bit of attention. I mean, I, there was a lot of noise, and the campaign was a, mm-hmm. was a pretty boring one, really. Um, basically, the, yeah. both sides were trying not to not to lose rather than trying to win. Was kind of how I would summarise yes, it. Pretty much. That's um, yeah, absolutely. There yeah, no it, one led, really it led to win. It led to some co- quite funny moments. Um, certainly, the former prime minister tried to reinvent himself, you know, a few times because yep. he, he could see that he was he was on the losing <laughs> side. Uh, I did love the the uh, phrase "not my job." Yeah, that kind of went around a fair yeah. bit. That was quite funny. Yeah, I don't hold I don't hold, <laughs> hold a hose, mate. Yeah, I think that was one of his yeah. lines from when the bushfires were happening, yeah. Um, yeah, which was funny, but and also disturbing at the same time. Um, oh yeah, but yeah, you got to laugh at it, so then you don't cry. Yeah, that's right. But there was a lot of examples yeah. of that happening over the course of his his prime mm. ministership. You know, he tried to tried to wash his hands of responsibility and, and sort of say that it was the state government's job or it was somebody else's job or whatever yeah. that, you know, when when he was getting criticised. Um, but, yeah, for me, my view on particularly, I think climate was probably the single biggest issue, uh, climate change. Uh, yes, and that- I agree. And it's, it's so um, I, I'm happy to say who I voted for, Mm. which was the Mm. Greens. Um, And I think a lot of people our age and younger, climate change is one of the biggest things that we would vote on um, because we can see that obviously people aren't doing anything in the government and we need people to do things. Otherwise, we're all going to die in heat. So (laughs) so I'm I'm in the same boat as you. I did vote for the Greens, but Mm. ultimately my vote didn't go to the Greens because they didn't. Uh, come down to the last two candidates in the seat that I live in, so my preference yeah. flowed would have flowed to Labor ultimately. But mm-hmm. I thought it was important to vote for the Greens so that you could see on the primary vote numbers that there were more people going towards minor parties like the Greens. Um, Absolutely, and yeah. A lot of people traditionally wouldn't vote Greens not because they disagree with them on climate, but because they're seen as kind of being a, a quite a left wing party. Um, you know, because yes. they're socially very progressive, um, and that that you know, big believers in in a, um, a a healthy safety net for people who might be unemployed or disabled or you know you know living with disability. Um, but as far as I'm concerned, on climate, I think that they're probably more conservative when it comes. If you take the view of looking at how the economy is going to look in the next ten years, obviously stuff mm-hmm. like renewable energies and carbon um, taxes and pricing and that is going to it's going to be everywhere around the world you know all our trading partners are going to have these schemes in place and if we don't have them properly developed and in place then economically we're going to suffer and so i, th- I think yeah. there were probably some 
fiscally conservative people who would probably maybe normally vote for the Liberal Party are probably thinking the Liberal Party is actually going against good economic policy here by not, you know, making way for cl- climate um, policy and, you know, redesigning our economy with that in mind. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think, and it, you know, the Greens ca- captured some of that vote, but it was also the, what they call the teal independence. So, um, for example, in WA, uh, the seat of... We had Kate's... Cheney, 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 yeah. Um, in this, in the um, electorate of Curtin, which is the Golden Triangle, basically for people who know Perth, mm-hmm. it's where where the, a lot of the rich people live between the river and and the ocean. <laughs> so Cottesloe yeah. and beautiful yeah, houses, Claremont there. and these all these places, really lovely. <laughs> yeah, big, big, big um, leafy, big leafy green streets um, and nice beaches and yep. all that sort of stuff. So yes, yeah, so she actually took the. Uh, seat that I don't think had ever been lost by the Liberal Party um, and yeah and she ran on primarily climate change and then also government accountability so the anti-corruption body that, that the last government agreed to bring in but and didn't. There was it's kind of interesting though because I, I guess I've heard rumours I don't know whether it's actually true or not but a lot of the independents including Kate Cheney mm-hmm are supported by mining money. And basically there was like one billionaire dude who was like, hey, I'm going to fund all of your independent stuff if you do things for me in the government. Yeah, uh, I think so. that's probably an oversimplification and and yes, yeah, oh, possibly also um, some people being being a bit cynical. So, yeah, I think yeah. it's Simon yeah, Holmes okay. Accord who is an entrepreneur. Uh, he comes from comes from a lot of money. So his, his dad, Robert Holmes yeah. Accord, and his mum, Janet, were very successful entrepreneurs and probably did make a, f- a fair chunk of their money from things like mining over the years. I'm not too sure if he's, if he still has big mining interests, but yeah, he, he provided part of the funding for a, a group of independents. Um, mm, you know, mm-hmm. I think six of whom ended up getting elected, but when you look at their, um, declarations for you know when someone donates to you, you've got to declare it to the electoral commission if you look at their declarations i think for a lot of them he was probably responsible for about 20 or 30 percent of the total funds that they raised so there were there were other mm, people okay. backing them and some of them could have been possibly mining companies too um, i mean someone like andrew forrest has done a little a bit of an about face when it comes to the climate you know he's investing heavily in green hydrogen um, to try and yep. offset a lot of the emissions that his mining companies generate, like carbon emissions. Um, so, yeah, mm-hmm. th- that's a really great example of, of how our economy is having to change. And if there wasn't a government prepared to facilitate that, then clearly that's going to be a problem. And that, that's one of the big reasons why you, you've seen a change of government, I think. Um, but- yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, really, really interesting. Um, yeah. So yeah, so yeah, I had a question. Yeah, you got a question? I'll, I'll. I did have a question. Okay, but I don't remember it anymore. Well, I think you're, yes. So another um, consequence of the change of government is I think you will see some subtle changes in in health policy, particularly around Medicare um, and the and the PBS. Um, you, you'll find I think that this government will be more open to. Not reforming the system, but, but updating it because it's it's. Yeah, they'll be adding more 
more things onto I, the PBS. I think so. And I, I know, yeah, the PBS. And then with regards to Medicare, there's a real problem at the moment with bulk billing in that it's uh, GP practices can't really sustain themselves from bulk billing alone because the rates are so low, the bulk billing rates, in terms of what they get compensated. And so a lot of them have moved to this mixed model where, you know, they they, they charge the uh, patient privately and then obviously there's a rebate mm-hmm. from Medicare as well. So, that, you know, it might cost you, say, 80 bucks or something like that for a consult. And then you'll get thirty-seven fifty or whatever that back from Medicare. Um, but yeah, the days of you know the clinics that just do bulk billing and don't charge anything privately, uh, I think under the current system are probably numbered because it's just hard to for the practices to make ends meet that way. So yeah, and unfortunately, because we've got such like a. Uh, a health workforce that are very stressed mm. out, even your GPs and uh, people not working in hospital, I guess, um, they kind of need the money to support themselves. Yeah. Like, because like, their lives would be hectic right, right now. Uh, so I can understand why a change is needed. Yeah. Um, but I will let all my friends know that use the bulk bill system to get in. <laughs> So then they don't necessarily have to pay yeah. later on. <laughs> Look, I mean, there's still some GPs out there that do, but it's I think it's yeah. increasingly hard. Um, and, and you'll probably find that those bulk billing only clinics are, are over oversubscribed. You know, it's probably quite hard to get appointments mm-hmm. and, and that sort of thing there now. So, yeah, and even the private GP clinics, you know, it's often a few days. Impact yeah, out. it's often a few days or a week or whatever before you can, or a couple of weeks even sometimes. Yeah, I, I have one GP that I've seen basically my whole mm-hmm. life. So um, I've kind of followed him to different practices that he's worked at. Um, but, you know, I tried to get an appointment with him maybe a few months ago mm-hmm. and it was at least two weeks. He was fully booked out for yeah. two weeks. Um, crazy. Yeah, it's happening. <laughs> uh, and the other the other thing I hope that a new government might bring is, is research funding um, because research has been research budgets, um, you know, from government controlled agencies have been cut quite a bit in in the last decade in real terms. So that obviously those grant schemes are getting more and more competitive, um, and you know, may, maybe that needed to happen. But at the same time, I know of a lot of very capable and um, strong researchers that would contribute a lot to to the knowledge base who are choosing to go and work in government or pursue other opportunities outside of research just because of the the uncertainty because you have to obviously apply for your funding every two or three or four years depending on what scheme. Yeah. And that's what I was just going to say is I think um, people outside of research don't quite realise because I, I guess I've had a lot of questions about this, about like salaries and how do I earn money and all that kind of stuff in academics and for people that, that haven't, experienced it or or don't know much about academics basically you come up with an idea and you find the funding for it um and if you don't find the funding for it then you're not going to get paid basically so um the issue is a lot of the the grants that are available for research have slowly declined uh in australia uh, particularly for western australia as well in health i know that um a lot of health areas are more likely to get funded if you're in Victoria or somewhere like mm. that. Um, and if we can't find the money, then 
we've got to find a job elsewhere. So research doesn't continue. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, people who are bright and motivated and whatnot probably think to themselves, well, I'm putting in the hours and I've done the training and, you know, I do the work. So do I really want to put myself through the uncertainty of not knowing if I've got a job next year every couple of years? And, you know, exactly. the, the short answer is for a lot of people, no, they don't want to do that. So that's, yeah, that's how you end up with a bit of a brain drain out of out of things like research and academia. Yeah, and you're more likely to, you know, you might be able to get more funding if you live in the US or somewhere like there as well. Yeah. So a lot of people will move out of Australia um, to develop their skills and get funding over there if they can. Yeah, um, yeah. and then there's also there's biases as well. So um, I know that as a, a female, um, particularly in the area that I'm in of cardiovascular health, it can be significantly harder to get any grant, uh, particularly as an early to middle career researcher. Right. I believe there's um, huge proportions that are different. So the high-end grants pretty much go to men um, and are reviewed by men and then it slowly trickles down to more women. But yeah. it's quite a large difference. So even if your idea is good enough, it may not get in just because of different biases. Yeah. Well, I'm going to flag that yeah. as a topic for a future podcast episode because I know that mm, there are mm-hmm. researchers who actually research that very issue um, and publish on yeah. it and that they analyse grant success and and the demographics of people who are getting the grants and and that sort of thing and it, it is a systemic problem when you have a, a disproportionately large number of men in senior positions because they are ultimately going to be the ones more likely to review and have the the final say on who gets funded so that's that's yeah. obviously something that's probably going to take some time to change but yeah clearly a clearly an issue that needs to be addressed yeah okay. yeah very good yeah, so I should, probably should just say that we didn't we didn't mention that the whole premise of of us doing this episode was as a Christmas in July special. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. We don't need to introduce this. It's fine. <laughs> um, yeah. So so basically, you know, as I think we all know, there's a number of different things happening around the world at the moment, um, and we thought we would just kind of cover a couple of the different health-related things, including changing government, climate change, um, as a what we would normally do in Christmas, at Christmas time instead. Yeah. Um, but there's just so many interesting things at the moment, and it can be hard to, like, nail down an expert for a podcast. Yeah, that's true as well. <laughs> I don't know anyone who's uh, an expert in monkeypox. No, here. not yet. No, <laughs> not yet. So, yeah, so monkeypox <laughs> has arrived. Um, I don't really know too much about it. Do you, do you know much about it? I, I, I know a little bit. Um, I have I have been following it a little bit. So um, I think as of yesterday, the 24th, maybe the 22nd of uh, July, monkeypox is now the highest health alert okay. um, from the World Health Organization. Um. But essentially, that was like the main guy, World Health Organization, went against the rest of his crew uh, to declare it a high health alert. I'm using very fancy words here, I know, but it's the way that I remember it. Um, mm-hmm. So the rest of his um, his board said, don't think it's a high health alert, the highest uh, level, but he went against that, uh, mainly to help 
health management of this disease in certain areas and countries that it's in um, and also to stimulate some funding for monkeypox because there's not much research about it. Um, the the kind of history of monkeypox is that it, it was discovered in 1970 um, and it was like one child had it and no one really knew much about it. And then it's kind of like popped up every so often. Um, but recently what's happened is there's been more person-to-person contact and transmission, which has led now to like 68 different countries having monkeypox, uh, like pops of cases coming around. Um, so... It's an interesting one, but I think it's characterized by, like, lumpy hands. That's all I've seen. It's like photos of lumpy right. hands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, it's an interesting mm. one. Yeah, I've heard it spreads. Th- uh, well, people from certain communities are more at risk. Yeah, so uh, there's kind of debate at the moment as to whether it should be considered um, an STD. Mm-hmm. Uh, because most of the communities that are getting monkeypox are men who have sex mm-hmm. with men. So that's the way it's kind of transmitting at the okay. moment. But, yeah, there's there's issues with labelling it as a sexually transmitted disease uh, because it's not just transmitted mm. through sex. It is just contact. It's skin-to-skin contact. So condoms and things don't really work right. um, to stop it. So, yeah, there's there's big debate as to whether it should be. Yeah, okay kind of categorised in that, yeah. Yeah, so yet, yet, yet another illness to be concerned about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like it's giving me vibes of HIV, um, right. which is unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, and do we know if the outcomes are as serious as they can be for HIV? No, no. So um, they're usually quite mild okay. in humans apparently, um, but that that's about all I know. Yeah. Um, which is crazy because, you know, it's it's spreading. Yeah, it's, <laughs> there's more people getting it. Yeah, I think there's – so obviously we've got to put monkeypox in the context of COVID, which is still ongoing. And if anything, mm. you know, is I think we've started breaking some of our previous records for hospitalizations and, and that sort of thing in parts of <laughs> Australia now. And, you know, um, I, I when I left to go to the UK, I'd, I actually had had COVID two weeks prior um, and recovered in time to be able to fly out. And at the time, the, the advice was that I couldn't be considered at risk of getting it again for 12 weeks. Mm-hmm. And by the time I came back from the UK, that had been cut to four weeks. So, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm officially now at risk again <laughs> of getting it. Um, <laughs> oh, you didn't get the luxury of the 12, didn't weeks. Get the 12 weeks. I, I did. Yeah. Um, and the, like lack of anxiety that I had about COVID in that 12 weeks was amazing. I knew it was just an arbitrary number. Like 12 weeks is arbitrary. Obviously, it changes um, person to person. Uh, But within that 12 weeks, I didn't think about COVID once. So after the 12 (laughs) weeks, I was very shocked that everyone was still getting it. (laughs) And look, I'll be interested to see what the reinfection rates are like. You know, if if there are Mm. some people who do get quite immune after having it once and much less likely to get it again or whether, you know, the reinfection rates are similar to the the original infection rates, like the first infection rates. Um, yeah, because yeah, I was I was having a chat with my dad about it, and I think there was a relative of someone that he works with in the office who'd had it three times in seven weeks, got three separate oh infections. 
So, yeah, it's obviously something we just are still finding out a lot about, and each variant is different to the last, and you know, maybe more or less infectious. Mm. And um, I think, and I think there's this um, there's this kind of, uh, it's been called a, a fatigue of some sort, like public health fatigue or COVID fatigue mm-hmm. um, related to kind of the, the mental aspect of COVID being around for so long. And I think this also affects our response to, to monkeypox um, in that the vibe of people just more and more people are not caring. Yeah. Um, and it's not that they don't truly care. It's that it's been such a long time mm-hmm. and we want to keep everyone safe, but the constant bombardment of information can make you anxious for long periods of time and then you get tired and it can make things much more difficult Mm. and following the advice becomes more difficult as well just because you are like mentally overloaded so i think that will affect um future diseases and infections that that come through uh and i have a feeling we'll probably see declines in other vaccination rates and things like that for diseases we know we can vaccinate against i don't think people are going to get them as much because we've gone through this period of you know get your vaccines get three get four however many you need mm. um and people after that are going to be like nah, no thanks no more for <laughs> <Too> me <many> vaccinations <laughs> yeah yeah it's yeah. an interesting one and i think one of the issues is that obviously the covid vaccine um at the at this stage doesn't stop people from contracting the virus so mm, you'll get mm-hmm. you're always going to get some people who don't really grasp the concept of the fact that it's preventing them from getting really ill even though it's not stopping them yeah. from you know getting the virus in the first place sort of saying well why am i taking it if it's if it's not stopping the virus like you know and that's also going to translate to other diseases where vaccinations do stop the transmission yeah. i think they're like well it doesn't work for covid so why would it work for this yeah. disease it'll, it'll be good i know that there is a a few trials currently, um, some of them are in sort of that animal testing phase to get a, a type of vaccine that can handle these different variants and future variants, you know, including mm. Omicron. Um, because the, you know, the current vaccines we've got were developed for the original strain of COVID and they've been effective for like Delta and, and whatnot, but don't seem to be doing too much in terms of reducing transmission of Omicron, but they are probably are protecting people from, well, yeah, the data suggests that they are protecting people from getting really ill and being hospitalised from Omicron. Yeah. leads on to a really interesting point because there there has been a a new variant uh it's like ba.75 yeah, like yeah um it's like yeah it's like a brand new one so that like we've got one and 0.5 or something and then there's a new 0.75 one um someone on twitter labeled as um centaurus oh, yeah. which i find quite funny um so some people know it as that mm-hmm. um but it was just some random guy on mm-hmm. twitter like not even in virology or anything. Uh, Anyway, uh, what they are postulating is that for this new one, this new Omicron, none of the vaccines are going to work because the mutations are so 
far off the previous strengths. And the issue is it's um, kind of mutated within less than six Mm -hmm. months. And with our current understanding of vaccines, particularly with the flu and things like that, where we can kind of predict what happens in the next year and then create the vaccines for the flu, whatever we think is going to be most frequent, um, and then give that out as like a thing that we can predict, with this new strain, it doesn't follow prediction models. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So who knows whether vaccines will be able to be made in time for new strains. but. We just have to wait and see. Because I think that was the uh, the whole point of these. So I'm, I'm, it's been so long since I've looked at vaccines properly. That is it. Hmm. M. No, was it? What are the two types? There's the ad- the adenovirus vaccine where they take a bit of virus and they make it, and then there's these other ones. Oh, there's like um, the mRNA. mRNA, yeah. Ones. Yeah, so yeah. supposedly the whole idea of the mRNA was it was going to be more agile to tweak a few things mm. in the vaccine to get to help us keep up with any changes. Um, so I'll be interested to see if that actually ca- comes to fruition and we are able to adapt our vaccines, you know, r- reasonably quickly. Because I think that was the whole point of yeah. that technology um, in the first place. Yep. But, the, but the thing is that this was the first time we were yeah, using the mRNA. I think so. Yeah, so it hadn't been like tested in other diseases yeah, yet. because the, the flu shot is one where they take a bit of virus and build the vaccine around that, I think, um, which is a more traditional vaccine, which is what the AstraZeneca one was, was all about. Um, but, yeah, so Pfizer and whatnot are the mRNA vaccines. So we'll see. Uh, one of the companies, at least, that I read about has got something currently in trial, phase one or, yeah, that sort of thing. So... Yeah, I've heard there's a couple of um, new trials. Yeah, so we'll see what happens. Around. But, yeah, all, safe to say the virus is going around. Like it, when I was in the UK, people were still catching it. or You know, it, it actually had a bit of a mm-hmm. spike in cases when I was there. Um, and I've, yeah, come across people getting it for the second time and that sort of thing, so, and even third time in some cases. So, yeah. yeah sounds horrible. Yeah, I don't really know what the what the answer is. I guess we just have to learn more about it and... Learn, learn how better to prevent it. And uh, yep. and hopefully this time we can actually record and document what we did properly yeah. um, and how we tackled it so then we can learn from this one for future mm-hmm. pandemics because there's obviously going to be more and they are going to be more frequent because of things like climate change and um, overpopulation and uh, all those kind of big world factors mm-hmm. um so hopefully we can learn from this one a bit more than what we did for for example with the spanish flu yep. um and that everyone wears a mask basically <laughs> yeah look that's uh i was probably a bit indifferent about the masks before i went off to the uk um mm-hmm. certainly there's there's people in the school that are still diligently wearing them um in the office and whatnot um but yeah since i've come back i've I've had a word with myself and I've been wearing them in, you know, the shopping centres and in the office and, and whatnot, you know, certainly on public transport um, because mm-hmm. the, I think there is no other surefire, it's not a surefire way, but there's no other as effective way that we have in in our own control to to give us a little bit of protection, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah, and these agree. mutations um, are going to keep yeah. happening if the virus is widely circulating 
kind of unchecked. Yep, and we know that masks work yeah. even for different variants. So it makes sense. That's right. Um, and you're even if you feel a bit silly, which I know like sometimes I do, um, I think I'm kind of in a better position because I work in a place where I have to mm-hmm. wear one. So for me it's just so much easier to get off the bus, keep my mask on, yeah, go to work <laughs> and all that kind of yeah. stuff. Um, but people would feel silly wearing them. Um, but it's really one of the – few things that we can do to protect ourselves and others. Yeah, so. no, I agree. Um, so anyway, yeah. it's, it's a personal choice, but it's one definitely one I'm making. So yeah, we'll see what happens. Um, but yeah, anyway, that's that's COVID and yeah, we'll, we'll watch this space. There's plenty more uh, research and development needed. Oh, there's going to be so much more. Yeah. Um, but talking about vaccines mm. though, um, I found out that you can actually – not for yourself, um, but if you own cows and deer and pigs, um, they can all get vaccinated for foot and mouth disease. Oh, okay. Which yeah. is quite topical, so, right? Yeah. So, so I've kind of been doing a bit of Googling um, because my partner and I want to go to Bali by the end of this year, and we decided that we were going to go to Bali before – there was a big outbreak of foot and mouth. Yep. <laughs> so a uh, bit unfortunate timing. Uh, we will probably still go. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's no real risk for, for us because humans can't get the disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and on a side note, I've had foot, hand and mouth disease apparently twice already. So, okay. you know, I'm well equipped for anything to do with ulcers in the mouth and feet. Uh, <laughs> um, but it is a, a disease that affects cattle mm. and Australia is a huge cattle area. Mm. So there's been um, bans in or like limitations in travel to, to Bali and how you can travel there and they're recommending you leave your footwear in, in mm-hmm. Bali when you come back to Australia because of this disease. Yeah, because once it starts spreading, like, you know, the worst case scenario is we end up having to, to destroy all of our cattle to stop it from yeah. carrying on, and that's happened. And that's a huge economic mm. issue. Like, that would be devastating. Yeah. It would have a – I mean, there's pressure on food supply chains already uh, around the world for various mm. reasons, mm-hmm. including a, a war going on in Europe. Um, but, yeah, something like that would – there's so many things going on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my yeah. gosh! Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's uh, the world is a bit upside down at the moment. I don't. Yeah, I don't recall any period of time. I mean, maybe September 11 back in 2001. Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of turned the world a bit on its ear. But I don't recall it being as disrupted as it is right now. Um, no, it may just be like our own biases, though, because you know we are. Uh, you know, young adults. So this is our prime time. Yeah. So we're probably more in tune with what's happening in the world. Because um, I did just read, I was, as I said, I was doing a bit of Googling about foot and mouth. Um, in 2001, that's when mm-hmm. the UK had their that's outbreak. Right. And so there was a big economic disaster based on that in the UK. So, you know, same same time. Yeah. But I was, I was a kid, so I had no idea what was going on at that point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's definitely... An interesting time geopolitically and and yeah. health wise, global health wise. Um, yeah, hope, hope, I mean, look, we. I think the world's pretty resilient. Usually, we get these challenges, we go through a bit of discomfort, and um, 
you know, a few setbacks and whatnot, but we generally find a way to innovate and get around um, and mm, sort of mm-hmm. navigate some of the challenges. So I'm sure we will again. Yeah. And hopefully that will happen in Bali with these these vaccinations. So we know that they're available Um the issue with Bali is there's a lot of rural areas yep. and it can be hard to transport vaccines. But again, COVID had the same issue here in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, due to heat, we had to keep those vaccines vaccines quite cold, um, you know, transporting them. Um, these are issues that, that can be addressed with the right funding and research and good people involved. Yes. So hopefully Bali can... Um, uh, get some vaccines out yeah. to their rural areas. Yeah, that's good. I had never heard of that, um, being able to vaccinate against foot and mouth, so that's good to know. Yeah, yeah. So I, I read something like it's a very small percentage in Bali that have been vaccinated of the, of all the cattle, um, which is why it's kind of rampaged its way through mm-hmm. um, the, the country, but is one of the reasons why Australia hasn't had it for like 150 years or something. Okay. Um, um, you know, one of the reasons, not the only reason. Um, but yeah, it it just need to get those cows vaccinated. Sense. Yeah. And also, like to throw out your thongs. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Yeah. So I thought I yeah. thought we should also touch on um, how things are going with res- with our respective PhD studies as well. Oh, yes. Can I go first? Yeah, you go first. Exciting news. Exciting news. I officially have a final date that I have to submit by, um, which is fast approaching. Uh, The latest date I can submit is the 6th of September. So I've got like just over a month Mm -hmm. um, and I've finally got my first draft of my last chapter out. or today, actually, I sent it today to my supervisors. So I'm so close. Um, it's really exciting. And I've had a pub- couple of papers published as well, which is oh, really congratulations. good. Um, thank yeah. you. So so one of them is um, uh, reasons and patterns of 30-day readmissions in uh, patients with atrial fibrillation and how those readmissions impact mortality. And essentially, no surprise, the more times you get readmitted, the more likely it is you're going to die. And it's not because, you know, hospitals are bad or anything like that. It's because you're becoming more sick. Mm -hmm. So readmissions then become one of those key places to implement management of not just atrial fibrillation but the other conditions that are influencing your reasons for readmission. Um, Yeah, so that paper's out if anyone wants to read it uh it is open access as well so literally anyone can which is exciting yeah. oh very good yeah so that that's where i'm at yeah, i'm in a pretty good place at the moment yeah. um just a little stressed out how about you craig how are yeah, you yeah so i'm just working on a couple of original studies at the moment um that are in the later stages of going through the supervisor comments and redoing and all that mm-hmm. sort of thing the process you've been through already um, so I'm hoping to get those uh, off my desk and into external reviewers' hands in the next month or so. Um, nice. I, yeah, I'd like to get my PhD submitted before the end of the year at this stage, yep. um, So, which would be good. Um, so, yeah, things are progressing. Um, but, yeah, obviously I've had a bit of an interruption with that trip, which was about a month. Um, 
I'd be worth yeah. it though. I think it, I had I had to get it's through it to get it out, you know, out of the system because yeah. it had been so long. And yeah, you know, we've got some family members in the UK who are getting on a bit as well. You know, who we mm-hmm. wanted to make sure we caught up with and whatnot. Um, so yeah, so that was good. Um, but yeah, now I'm sort of back into the swing of it and looking forward to getting these first couple of um, original papers off my desk. And then I've got a couple more that I've been working on that are in like the earlier stages, you know, of planning and mm-hmm. drafting and whatnot. So yeah, but yeah, I'm looking forward to getting the balance of the PhD finished now, just because it's been going on for a while and <laughs> yeah, it needs, yeah. Look, you kind of get over it at some point. Look, and you, your life is somewhat on pause, you know, on pause. Um, yes, you know, because while, while you're doing your PhD, obviously that's a good chunk of time that you've got to um, set aside for that, which means that you're not spending that time on other things, which you know could mm-hmm. be helping to progress your career in whichever direction you're looking to take it. So, yeah, but yeah, no, no complaints. Just I've just got a, a bit more bit more hard work to do just to get yeah, push it through keep plodding through yeah so yeah oh it's hard though <laughs> it's tough yeah oh uh, yeah it's oh, worse. god i don't know what i was thinking when i signed up to do it you're probably thinking it'd be nice to have a phd <laughs> <laughs> i think maybe i it's, it's kind of funny actually because um uh i don't know whether i've said this story on podcast before but when I did my psychology honours, um, people were asking whether I was going to do the the master's slash PhD in psychology. And I remember just going, why would anyone ever want to do that? It sounds horrendous. And then, you know, three years later, I started yeah. mine. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I don't think it ever was I'm keen to do a PhD. It was more of... Someone gave me a topic and I was like, oh, yeah, like, why not? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's been good, though. Like, no, no regrets. It's been very, very good and um, I've learned a lot. Yeah, I think that's the big t- take-home for me so far is just skills and whatnot that I've had to mm-hmm. learn and develop um, that I wouldn't have otherwise done. Yeah, Absolutely. and. I know that regardless of what direction my you know next bit of work goes in, that having those that's that experience and those skills will be beneficial and useful. You know, absolutely. Um, I mean, you, you're currently doing some work which I think utilizes those skills, right? Yeah. 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 So um, it's it's been it's a very interesting job. Um, so I am uh, also the data manager for the Emerging Drug Network of Australia. Um, I get to look at the cool and fun novel drugs that are coming out in Australia, which is really Mm. interesting. Um, It's a whole new area, though, like, you know, cardiovascular disease and illicit drug use. There's a very small window of overlap, Mm -hmm. um, and that is that sometimes illicit drug use can cause heart failure. But that's not my area either. So... um, it's it's highlighted how much, like what skills you do learn in a PhD and how transferable they mm. are, even in completely different topics. Yeah. Um, but I also didn't appreciate how much I'd learned about cardiovascular disease because mm. going into a new topic and trying to learn all of the different names. Like I, 
you know, I get confused as to what drugs what. Like, they've all got funky street names, and I like I, I don't know any of that stuff. I'm very naive about drugs. Mm. Um, so it's it's been a massive le- learning curve, but the, the skills that a PhD has given have really helped me kind of get over that hump. Yeah, I, I think it's, and it's like with any discipline that you that you might study, it provides you a... Mm. Um, a, a way of thinking, like a, a framework for solving problems, for identifying problems and solving them. Um, and it was the same with yep. law. You know, you're taught to, to analyze mm. legal um, legal scenarios to identify what the problem is, and then provides you like a system to work through to to end up solving the problem and coming up with an answer. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, yeah, look, I, I think research is similar. You know, you're just basically developing a template for how to handle data, you know, how to formulate a research question, how to set up your study so you can answer that question and then what your results mean and how that should inform the next piece of work that you do or that someone mm. else does. Um, yeah, it is just a process. Yeah, very much. And, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm, you know, to, to certainly doing a PhD, I'm still learning it. And I, I think everyone's always still learning. It's just you get a bit quicker at doing it you know, once you've done it a few times, you get hopefully get a bit quicker at working your way through the steps. Hopefully. Yeah, <laughs> that's the idea. Yeah. Hi, we hope you're enjoying this episode. If you have a minute and enjoy the conversations we bring you, it'd be great if you could go to wherever you get your podcasts and give us a quick rating and review. Not only do we love to get your feedback, but it also helps other people to find us. Thank you. And now back to the show. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. What have you got in store for the rest of the year? Then, after you've your PhD submitted, ah, uh, uh, you know, lots of non-work related things. Uh, <laughs> so, I know that uh, you know during during my PhD time, as much as I tried to balance work and life, um, it is a struggle. Mm-hmm. So, I know that I've I've put a lot of friends and family on the back burner. Um, so my plan after my PhD is to sleep for a long time to kind of recover, um, go away for a little bit. Uh, we've My partner and I have got some very fancy dinners lined up. I want to go to uh, Wildflower in Perth um, and do their like six-course wine-paired uh, very fancy dinner. It's going to be so yeah. good. Um and then I'm going to get back in touch with a lot of friends that have kind of dropped off. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> making those reconnections, I yeah, think, good. for me. And then, yeah, I'll continue with this Edna project uh, for, for a little bit. I think it's it's very interesting and I can see the the, the need for mm-hmm. it in our, in our current context in Western Australia. So, yeah, cool. uh, yeah that's my plan. Excellent. What about you? Yeah, so I'm... So yeah, obviously my PhD is is a big focus for the next few months. Yeah. Yeah, next several months. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm involved in a project that's sort of in its early stages, looking at uh, medical cannabis, um, and looking at the impact it has on you know certain groups of patients, you know, based on their demographics and um, the the condition that they're being treated for and that sort of thing, because. Um, there's, it's it's quite hard to do cannabis trials because of the regulatory mm-hmm. frameworks and the fact that cannabis is is still 
considered illegal in in a lot of countries. And so, yeah, it's it's a funny one from a policy point of view because cannabis has been approved, um, you know, to try and treat certain illnesses, um, you know, certainly for pain management and insomnia, and there's a there's a list of different things, and even down to like autism for in children. Um, they're trying it mm-hmm. to sort of manage beha- autistic behavior and which is that's new to me i didn't realize until i started this study um yeah, that's interesting and somewhat controversial I yeah think. and yeah, that, that, yeah well i think the whole area is controversial um you know regardless of whether it's autism or, or pain management or you know any of these things mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. from what i can tell because there's no really big trials because it's it's hard to set up a big trial in this space and there's not a huge amount of profit incentive for biomedical companies because you can't patent a plant, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think a lot of the funding in this area probably has to come from public funding. Um, obviously, there could be a big public health benefit if cannabis is, or a certain part of the cannabis plant is um, shown to be effective for treating some of these conditions. You know, seizures are another thing, you know, uh, chronic seizures mm-hmm. and relapsing mm-hmm. seizures recurring seizures um but it seems to be very like there's a lot of anecdotal evidence um and it seems to be very changeable so depending on who you talk talk to so some people have been prescribed cannabis as a sort of i guess a a treatment of last resort because nothing else has worked or the side effects of other drugs is too much for people to bear and they've had you know, a great experience and said that it really solved a lot of the issues they were having. Then others say that they hated it, you know, that they they got prescribed cannabis, hated how it made them feel, didn't, it didn't really solve the problem they were having, treat, you know, treat the problem they were having. And so, so I guess the best way that we can maybe research cannabis is because this stuff is happening and people are getting prescribed it and trying it and maybe they try it for a year or two years, as many people as we can include in in the studies, in observational studies rather than trials, it might give us uh, the ability to try and pinpoint the types of conditions that maybe cannabis is working for more often than not. Um, where, yeah, and, and like whether cannabis is actually feasible as a pain management alternative to opioids, which obviously have their own issues in terms of dependence and that sort of thing. Um. So, and it may be that that cannabis works for people from a certain age group better than another age group for particular conditions. And it may be that it works better for men than women or vice versa, you know, for certain things. And so that's sort of where we're at. We're sort of throwing mud at the wall at the moment and just seeing what sticks, you know, can we see an appreciable difference in outcomes for people, you know, diagnosed with illness A? Um, maybe we do, and then it will be not so much, and then we'll see, you know, somewhere in the middle, uh, and then potentially that the gains that might be seen from being prescribed cannabis increase as people get older or decrease as people get older, you know. So it's really fertile ground from a research point of view, but it's quite tricky mm. still because there are limitations on what you can do because it's not it's not widely prescribed and widely used. It's you know it's the the, the numbers are certainly growing, but it's really in its infancy and um it's just i think it's such a subjective experience that people have you know some 
It's, it's like some people get prescribed opioids and will tell you it's the worst thing they've ever done. And others will take it and they'll say, that's the best feeling I've had is getting prescribed, you know, whether it was morphine or, um, mm, you know, one mm-hmm. of the stronger ones. Um, so, yeah, very subjective and difficult. Yeah, interesting. Wait, so so what Wait, what data are you using? So it's a clinical registry. Um for a oh, okay. for a GP service or a medical yep. services company, I guess you'd call them. Um, and yes, you know, there's there's a number of patients been treated for different things, and so it's our job to sort of dissect, um, you know, the most common conditions, and then, um, you know, try and based on so they they do administer sort of medical, uh, well, sort of health screeners and stuff like that for different things. You know, routinely. Mm-hmm. So we've got information we can look at, but yeah, at this at this stage, it's still embryonic. Um, so we haven't got any results for anything yet. We're we're still going through the process of working out, you know, what to do, and uh, obviously trying to get the the relevant approvals, you know, ethics approvals, and mm-hmm. and that sort of stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll see see how that progresses. But yeah, yeah that's sort of just a fairly small. Uh, focus for me at the moment. Obviously, getting my PhD done is is the major one. And do you think do you think that'll be your main focus after PhD? Uh, look, it's hard to say, um, but potentially. <laughs> look, it it really just just depends on what we find initially as well, um, as yeah. to whether or not it, there seems to be more uh, more work to do in that space um, with. Uh, there's literally nothing in the data, then there's no yeah, point. Yeah, <laughs> and, and with with the current resources we've got, you know, whether there's more work that we can do with those resources or whether something additional mm-hmm. needs to be generated, you know, whether they do need to, to run a, a trial and try and recruit more people or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, but there probably, yeah. uh, you know, would need to be a bit of a change in attitude from regulate, you know, regulators um, to facilitate that because... Yeah, cannabis is obviously still a controlled substance, and um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's not the easiest thing to run trials on at this stage. No. So, I, I understand a little bit about it because we had this same um, issue with Edna, mm-hmm. um, because the main kind of context of the project is to get blood samples from people that come into mm-hmm. hospital, um, and one of the biggest issue is getting true consent from your participants because yep. they're coming into hospital obviously under the influence and because they're under the influence of something you can't necessarily get um consent yeah so i know that there was like a whole process to try and get that all approved so you didn't have to get consent and things like that to even collect these samples mm-hmm. um and then there's also the issue of like we've got blood samples that show that they've taken illicit drugs. Um, where does that fit in terms of police evidence? Yeah. Um, so we've had to like create it so that the chain of evidence doesn't follow with that blood sample. Okay. So, you know, very, very interesting working with illicit drugs. Um, so many things to consider. Yeah, it's very, it's a sensitive area. Um and yeah. a lot of the, some of the people that come in would be under in police custody essentially, it's, um, mm-hmm. but but require re, yeah requiring healthcare. Um, yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of sort of justice related issues and um, yeah, 
other other you know yeah. related issues with that group. <laughs> yeah. Oh well. As we know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Interesting. <sighs> but, Boy. Well, yeah. I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to cover before we wish everyone a happy Christmas in July. I think I think that's it. I, I think you know. Uh, as much as I would love to get into the whole abortion debate as well, because I know that's a health issue that's kind of happening in the US at the moment, yeah. um, I would love to find someone to actually talk to about that. So, yeah. Craig, we got to get on it. Um, I agree. Definitely want an expert in abortions. It's, there's that. Um, yeah, that has implications. Yeah, that has implications for so many different parts of health. You know, social yeah. determinants yeah. of health. It's a huge and, area. Just. Um, yeah. yeah, but like you know, we've talked about so many things in you know an hour and nine minutes um, that all deserve yeah. very extensive conversations. But yeah, I think um, abortions is one I'd like to you know really get in depth with. Yeah. Um, so for this episode, I don't think there's much else that I'd like to talk about. Okay, excellent. Well, yeah. On that um, that final note, <laughs> thanks everyone who's made it this far and listened to us have a uh, fairly casual chat um but we we thought it'd been a while since we caught up properly just the two of us so yeah i thought we'd and it's it. also good for us to just chat sometimes i think yeah you know we don't see each other that often anymore um a lot of our recordings are online and um yeah. you know we're both very busy so yeah it's good to just like talk <laughs> i agree yeah and if people yeah. if people are listening and want to talk to us it's the best way of them doing that you can tweet us at health means what. We'd love to talk to you on there, or you can email us as well, meaningofhealth at outlook.com. Uh, yeah, anything you guys would like to chat about, we are more than happy to spend some time talking about the areas that you would like to learn about. Um, if you have any uh, people that you think would be good for this podcast, then please let us know. We would always love to chat with more people. Yep, excellent. All right, thanks very much, Courtney. And thanks, thanks, Greg. Yeah, thanks everyone for listening. And we'll be back with a new guest soon. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the Education Enhancement Unit and the School of Population and Global Health at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Weber with editing, mixing, and additional music by Craig Cumming. <laughs>